evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Katie Elston. I have the honor and pleasure of being the executive director of Marion House, and I'd like to welcome you all to our fourth community dialogue in our um, series that we've been having. Uh, the one that we're having tonight, uh, the topic is the disease of addiction. Uh, treatment, not incarceration, is our topic for the evening. The women that we serve at Marianne's are, are very unique individuals. Many of them have undergone a lot of horrors and traumas in their life. Uh, Marianne's, as an organization, was founded to be a safe place for women who are coming out of incarceration. And over the course of these years that we've been um, growing and, and evolving the program, uh, we have opened up to all homeless women uh, who are eligible in the city. Many of them, though, have long histories of trauma and, and the disease of addiction, many of them have been incarcerated. About 65% in last fiscal year have been incarcerated at some point in time in their lives. We find that the women at Marion House, for them, um, many of the charges surround their disease. So it may be theft as something that they're doing out in the community to survive, to, to be able to get the money they need to support their habit. Um, or it may be drug possession charges and things like that. So for us, the disease of addiction and incarceration intertwine very much in Marion House. So tonight we're going to talk about the over-incarceration of people with disease, some of the things that we're doing locally, some of the problems and concerns we have, a little bit about the work that we're doing at Marion House with this particular population. So I, uh, I want to encourage you all to participate, ask questions, make comments throughout uh, the evening. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for being here, and most especially our panelists, of course, who you're going to meet in a few minutes, and Antonio Fascinelli, who agreed to be our moderator for this evening. Um, of course, we'd also like to thank the Inoctat Library for giving us this space. If you have not had a chance to visit downstairs to the left of the central area of the library is where you'll see the pictures and jewel cases downstairs. So if you haven't had a chance, to see the pictures, uh, about half of them are downstairs in the central library. And please encourage any family or friends who'd like to see those pictures uh, to come by and visit any time we be moving up through the middle of June. And of course, also want to thank a few of the other people who made this possible. Um, Peter Brune, our project coordinator, is here, who's made this building project happen. Who does important things like set up the pictures when it's time. Um, also want to thank our funders, the TKF Foundation, uh, the Hershey Foundation and OSI Baltimore, who is our biggest funder and supporter of our project. Without them, of course, we would not be able to be here. And of course, Meg Montone, who coordinates all of our wonderful events um, and makes me sleep well at night. Some of our wonderful ladies from the book are here. Actually, if, if you're from our book and, and would be willing to stand, our beautiful, fabulous alumna. <laughs>
We support all the work that the women who are living in Marion House, who have graduated from Marion House, have been doing. And so I wanted to stop by today just to pledge my ongoing support um, you know, of your efforts and also to continue to enlist you to support me in my efforts to support women and weird children and families and families like you in Baltimore State and across the state of Maryland. Can you make our legislative process, our, our, our budgeting process, and, and ultimately we hope our correctional system really fit the needs and support you and not, and again, move towards recovery and non incarceration. And also for the board members and all of you who support all this wonderful work, either through your time, your talents, and your resources. Thank you so much. It's the thing that is so wonderful about representing Baltimore City. It's the thing that when I'm in Annapolis or even across the country, I'm talking, I talk about that we have such a, a support, a feeling of, I guess, of, of this charity, um, but also of just lifting each other up and a willingness to give of yourself. But that's so much a part of who we are in Baltimore City. And I thank you so much for being a part of that. So again, just a couple of words of thanks. conversation with a larger audience. So I just wanted to let everyone be aware that that was happening. And again, thank you very much, and look forward to talking to you later. Antonia. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Katie. Um, and it really is my pleasure to be here. And whatever Katie just said about me is the way I feel about her. She's really a fantastic leader of Marion House, um, which is really uh, such a wonderful program. And we're very lucky to have it um, in the city of Baltimore. Um, it really is my pleasure to um, have been asked to moderate this wonderful panel. Um, at the Homeless Persons Representation Project, um, we often see the uh, conflict created when uh, incarceration is the solution, uh, and I use that in quotes, uh, offered to people who really ultimately need treatment for their conditions. Um, and I use treatment broadly. I think today we're going to talk a lot about drug treatment. But in general, treatment, uh, be it health treatment, uh, mental health treatment, et cetera, is often what is so critical um, to help people stabilize their lives. And the more that we're able to emphasize treatment, uh, the more we are able to um, reach an end to many of the social ills that plague our society, like homelessness and other issues. Um, it, we have a wonderful, wonderful panel uh, that Marion House has put together for you this evening. Um, to my right is Thomas Cargiulo, who's with um, OSI Baltimore and is program director uh, for the Tackling Drug Addiction Initiative. I'm not going to give full bios because I'm very conscious of the time and I want to make sure to give the speakers lots of time to speak, but I encourage you to look at his bio and everyone else's as well. 
Sitting next to him is Trina Selden, um, a, a colleague of ours in the advocacy community as director of Out for Justice, and also um, very happy to be a Marion House alumna. Next to her is Kathy Lavinia, and uh, Kathy is uh, with Marion House. She is the clinical supervisor there, um, and we'll be talking uh, quite a bit about Marion House's programs. And last but absolutely not least is <laughs> Judge Albert Matriciani um, uh, with uh, Maryland's Court of Special Appeals. Um, Judge Matriciani is here tonight to talk about a wonderful project that we've had the pleasure of working with him on, which is the creation of a specialized uh, diversion docket um, in Baltimore's Early Resolution Court that we're going to be calling the Docket for Homeless Persons that will actually start in late June of this year. Um, and um, Judge Matriciani, as you all probably know, was also for a long time uh, a trial judge and uh, has extensive experience um, uh, hearing cases related to uh, felony drug charges and will also be bringing that perspective to the conversation. Um, uh, so without further ado, um, I'm actually going to start the conversation with Tom uh, from OSI. Tom is going to really frame the discussion for this evening um, to talk a little bit about um, national and local drug policies, what has worked and what has failed, um, and to talk about some of the statistics um, that we have in the local community. So I just want to turn it over to you right away, Tom. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Good. I uh, want to make sure I was loud enough. I'm a New York Italian, so if I start speaking too quickly, please you know, tell me to slow down. Uh, I also need to use my hands a lot, so I try not to hit you as I'm talking. Uh, I, I, and uh, yeah, I kind of want to just like kind of frame where we are. And sometimes I think it's good to take a step back and learn the history of how we really got to where we were. Uh, and the war on drugs that we've had for the last hundred years started in 1914 with the Harrison Act. And that's really where the United States started along the trail that was going. Uh, in the early 1900s, actually, there was probably the best drug policy that you know ever came into play, which was the Pure Food and Drug Act. And that was, you know, so important because that made any type of pharmaceuticals that you purchased have to be, you know, safe for human consumption. And prior to that, what was happening was people were buying like Dr. Smith's uh, snake oils to get them to feel better, and it was full with opiates, um, opium. And so people would take it, they feel better. Well, you take opium, you're gonna you're gonna feel better, and you take it a couple days in a row, you feel good. You stop taking it, what happens? Well, you feel like crap. Yeah. So you need to take more. You take more, and you feel better. So the Procure Freedom Drug Act was a tremendous way to really, you know, put a significant damper on you know, the drug problem that we had in the late 1800s in the United States. Um, the Harrison Act was one of the worst, you know, uh, drug policies, but then it just got worse from that point on. And so since 1914, what we've tried to do, we've really tried to arrest our way out of a chronic disease. And we've continued to fail, and as we fail, we just keep pushing that envelope further and further. Uh, some of the data, well, to even go back a little bit further, when um, Gil Kurlikowski, the current drug czar, took office about five years ago, one of the things that he said is, the war on drugs is over, we've lost it, you know, it's done. Yet the feds are now saying there's no war on drugs, it's over, yet in 2011, there were 1.5 million Americans arrested for nonviolent drug uh, offenses. 1.5 million people arrested who were nonviolent, you know, drug arrests. 
You know, in 2011, there was 2.2 million people, you know, in jail. Of that 2.2 million people in jail, incarcerated, over 500,000 of them were incarcerated for nonviolent drug offenses. To put a little perspective, in 1980, there were 40,000. So 1980, 40,000 people in jail for drug arrest. You know, 2011, 500,000. You know, we've continued to try to arrest our way out of this, and it doesn't work. And then what happens? We have a criminal record. What happens when you have a criminal record? Well, you can't get student loans. In 2011, there were 200,000 people lost student loans because of a drug arrest. You know, what do you want people to do? You want them to get educated. You want them to be able to get housing. Yet we're having people that have criminal records. Now they're having difficulty getting jobs, being able to get education, and they're just, you know, that we just keep putting barriers and barriers in front of individuals, you know, that we're really trying to help. We don't do that with diabetes. We don't do that with hypertension. God bless you. Uh, and yet this is where we've tried, and it's been a continual failure for individuals. And where we're hopefully that things are going to be going to happen is, you know, when we talk about you know successes and failures, the, the failures are tremendous, and we can talk for you know days about the failures of our drug policy. But there are some pilots of good work that's going on. The drug courts, drug courts are a tremendous you know way to really help individuals. Get their fix. You know, they're a way, they're a workaround. You know, we have individuals that are arrested, you know, so it's treatment instead of incarceration. You know, that's better than incarceration, but still, you know, if you have a criminal record, there's difficulties with uh, with achieving in life. And the data is real clear that, you know, drug use, you know, is not a deterrent with success in life, you know, yet a criminal record is a significant deterrent with being successful in life. What some of the work that's happening in Seattle, there's work uh, work going on, law enforcement assisted diversion. You know, really where I think we need to get with our drug policy is instead of treatment instead of incarceration, if we get treatment instead of arrest. Let's get individuals identified. You know, if the criminal justice system is going to be a part of this disease, then let's get them, get people identified earlier and not have the criminal justice, you know, be a part of it, get them into treatment. Our primary care docs are doing an awful job. You know, our health care system does a ridiculous job with <coughs> treating this addiction. With health care reform, hopefully there's, you know, some light at the end of the tunnel that, you know, we'll start identifying individuals earlier in the progression of the disease, get them identified, get them into treatment before all those bad things start happening while you still have the support systems that are there to be able to really help carry people. You know, we've had a criminal justice approach to this public health issue, and we really need to have a public health approach to a public health issue. Um, I can talk more and I can talk a lot more, but with time considerations and I've, if you haven't read the book, read the book. It is tremendous. It's a very inspirational book to really, you know, listen to these 30 stories that are out there and, and the courage that the women in this book have had uh, and what they've been able to accomplish is just tremendous. Um, so I will be more than happy to answer questions at the end and I will turn it over to Trina. Fantastic. And, and uh, again, for those who came in, uh, Trina Selden is the executive director of Out for Justice and a Marion House alum. Um, and um, we're so delighted to have you here. I think it's always an important value for those of us who advocate for policy change to always create um, the space for those who are affected to speak Absolutely. first and be supported by us. So I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I came through Marion House by way of incarceration. Um, before Marion House, I had been I'm nervous, in and out of prison um, beginning <clears throat> in 97. I started using drugs. Okay. 
late in life. I think I was around 27, 28 years old. Um, I didn't have the relationship that normal, you know, teenage girls had with their mom. So I guess I was the abandonment issues. Um, my mom was using drugs. I didn't know it. She and my brother had this great relationship, and I wanted that relationship. So I thought if I picked up and used, you know, we would be we'd cool. Um, soon after that, I mean, my first time being arrested, it was in 97. Um, my usage, my just spiraled out of control really fast. Um, my first incarceration, like I said, was in 97. Um, I did little bits at city jail. In the 98, I was arrested and I went to prison. I came home uh, for maybe the first five months of 99, and I was back at the end of 99 into 2000 with two 12-year sentences with the stipulation that I could not write for modification or anything else until I found a long-term residential treatment program to get into. Um, I had researched all the programs in the city, and somebody came to me and said something about Marion House. Uh, I wrote to them, and Miss Lavinia came down and interviewed me. And from the onstart, you know, it was like these people. She didn't even know me, but she seemed to care about me, like, and had faith in me more than I had in myself. She believed in me more than I believed in myself, and said really great things about me, not even knowing me. You know, this was just at the interview process. Um, when I got there, I was. I, I kind of bucked it a little bit. Like, I'm coming out of prison. I've been here for three years. Um, I didn't need any you know, therapeutic treatment and you know all of that, but I was wrong. It was like everything that I needed was right there at Marion House. Um, I wrote some stuff down. I think I skipped some things. I'm sorry. Let me go back. All right, so. Let me go back to the prison, I'm sorry. So while in prison, I did all the programs that was available. I did women's intensive treatment program for nine months, and it was nothing like the experience with Marion House. You know, I sat in front of these people every day and told them my life, like I was ripping Band-Aids off of all of these sores, and no one was there to put them back on, um, unlike Marion House. Um, I did all the programs, I went to school, I stayed, I was scheduled to come home uh, in March, and I wrote Mary House and said, well, look, I'm about to graduate in July, you know, can I stay <laughs> till I get this certification because that's the only way that I'm going to have a fighting chance. So I got this certification in human services, come home, they be told because of my arrest record that I could not get a job working with special needs children. No abuse charges. No other charges except for drug charges. Finding ways and means, you know, selling drugs, possessing charges. Um, and had all these doors slammed in my face. So when I got out, and I, the opportunity presented itself, um, with one of the founders of Alpha Justice, Dottie, she came to me and said, you know, there's money for black, you know, get, let's get some, can you get some men and women together? And we came together to try to change the unjust laws and policies that hinder successful reentry. So that's what we do with Alpha Justice. We try to change those laws. Um, people that are, a person can serve for 20 years in prison, you know, and have a drug abuse history. If they don't address the reason why they picked up in the first place, when they get out after doing that 20 years, they're going to pick up again. Um, I believe in rehabilitation, not incarceration. I believe instead of building prisons and all of that other stuff, build rehabilitation centers. 
the average drug addict want to get clean. They just don't know how. And if the opportunities are not there, then they're going to go out and repeat the cycle. Um, that's fantastic. Um, and one of the things that you're highlighting here is that even after someone has served their sentence right. in jail, they continue to suffer the consequences of that incarceration, Absolutely. even though the sentence has concluded. Absolutely. And in fact, Thomas Cardula, I'm going to turn it back over to you for a moment. You had said something to me um, that I want you to talk a little bit about, which is um, from a medical perspective, um, the costs, uh, the human cost to incarceration far outlasts the human cost to the body of the drug use itself. Um, and um, I, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about those consequences. Yeah, yeah, a lot. Prevention, you know, if there's any people who work in substance abuse prevention here, uh, I'm going to piss you off. Uh, <laughs> Prevention has been a significant failure because we've tried to over-exaggerate the negative of drugs. We try to make drugs be these awful, awful things and try to scare people out of using drugs. It doesn't work. You know, it's not the severity of a consequence that changes behavior. It's the likelihood of consequence is going to happen. You know, most people know we should exercise for 20 to 30 minutes, you know, four times a week to prevent death from cardiovascular disease. Yet we don't do that because not because death isn't significant, but because we don't think it's going to happen to us now. You know, it's the same thing with drugs. You know, people realize that you know there's a lot of garbage when we say, oh well, if you smoke pot, you're going to wind up shooting heroin. Well, that's not how things happen. Yet, you know, to kind of bring this around, what you said earlier about treatment. You know, treatment being not just drug treatment, but you know, health treatment. There are a lot of things. You know, drug use really isn't that bad. You know, drugs themselves is how you use it. IV drug use where you get HIV, hepatitis. See, you know, the roots of administration, the drugs themselves aren't inherently good or bad, yet we've made drugs out to be bad and evil, and subsequently we've made the people who use drugs out to be bad and evil, and that's not the case. Um, you know, there's a lot that kind of comes along with that, and, you know, that, you know, drug use that comes along with it, you know, there are a lot of then other medical consequences that come along, and that's that early identification that becomes so, such important piece where when you picked up when you were 27, you know, if you had a, you know, annual doctor's appointment that, you know, hopefully now with the Affordable Care Act, you know, people will have insurance and hopefully, you know, realize you need to see your doc at least once a year. If your doc then identified you, you know, that first couple of months, that first year you started using and say, hey, uh -huh. I think your use might be a little problematic. Let's kind of, I want you to go talk to somebody and kind of easing people into the treatment system earlier as opposed to coming into the, you know, criminal justice system, which is very expensive, as opposed to, you know, identifying somebody earlier and helping move them along that continuum um, and, and supporting them throughout. Because there's a lot of things that come into play besides just the drug use. But, you know, if you're homeless, you know, it's kind of tough to get into treatment, you know, making sure that you have the housing that is a part of it and that, you you know, if you have uncontrolled diabetes or hypertension, you know, those things need to be addressed also because those stressors come into play. If you don't have a job, that comes into play, at, you know, as a holistic approach to what we're dealing with treatment. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's a perfect segue to the discussion of treatment. And <laughs> Kathy Lavinia, I think you know all about treatment. So. <laughs> Would you please share how you do what you do at Marion House? Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd like to say is Trina's story is very um, common. Mm -hmm. And Trina shared with all of us that uh, one of the reasons that attracted her to drugs was her mom was using. And um, she wanted to be with her mom. So she used to be with her mom. 
and that's a common story. Um, people want to feel that love and feel that uh, nurturing and feel wanted. And when I went down to MCIW to visit Trina, that's what she felt for me. So it's that human connection that people want. And that's what uh, the sign as you walk into Marion House says, peace to all who enter here. And that's really what Marion House is about. It's about giving that human love to all women. Um, we are a holistic program founded by the Sisters of Mercy, the School Sisters of Notre Dame, and they gave us a gift, the gift of the charisms of love and mercy towards all women who enter us. And as staff, we really want to um, transmit that and give that gift to all the staff who follow us. Um, we've had a, uh, first of all, we need to recognize that addiction whether it's addiction to drugs or alcohol or to whatever it might be, is a disease. And we can intervene in the um, medical health system if our primary care physicians are trained to do that. Uh, but that doesn't happen now. So we have the disease of addiction. Most women who come to us have been incarcerated. Uh, they also, many have a co-occurring disorder. So you might have bipolar one or you might have depression or you might have been a victim of childhood sexual abuse when you were a child. So now you have the trauma. So if you go tell that story to somebody, all they hear is stigma and oh my goodness, I don't want to be so close to you because you got problems and I might catch it. That's a real scary thing. At Marion House, we just love you to death. That's really what we do there. It's a holistic program. We don't just look at the disease of addiction. That's not what we're looking at. We're looking at who you are as a human being. So when you come to Marion House, we have master's level counselors who are trained to treat all of these issues the co-occurring disorder, the addiction, uh, the abandonment, um, the need to feel loved and nurtured, uh, and the trauma, which is a very important piece. Um, they have the uh, individual counseling weekly so that we can get at these issues that Trina mentioned. Uh, so you can get at the core issues of how I really felt as a child because my mother loved my brother more, or that's how I perceived it. And I didn't get what I felt I needed as a human being from my mom. I even tried to get it by using with her, but that didn't work either. So we get at those core issues. We have a weekly group that focuses on, uh, we call it addiction education, but it's really um, taking people apart and putting them back together again. And those of you who have been through this group know what I mean. We talk about the disease of addiction and chemicals in the brain, what it really does to you. We talk about stages of change and introduce you to that change is a process. And the sisters knew that in the beginning. That's why they made Marion House long term. Our transitional program is two years long. So that changes a process. We give an overview of steps one, two, and three. Not that we're going to substitute for a 12-step program, but we want to teach you a little bit about powerlessness and unmanageability and that being able to turn yourself over to something greater than you. We go through um, dual diagnosis and we introduce the impact of trauma. And we say, okay, people don't pick up drugs because they want to be a drug addict. Nobody signed up and said, I want to be a drug addict or I want to be an alcoholic when I grow up. They didn't say that. They said, I want to belong to that group of girls in the seventh grade bathroom 
They're in there smoking weed, and I want to belong to something. I don't have anything at home I can belong to. I want to belong to them. Or my friends are using, and I'm curious. I don't know what they're doing, but I'm really curious. So let me see what's happening there. That's what happens. And before they know it, biology takes over. It could happen to any of us. That's what happens. Biology takes over. Tolerance builds. They don't have a choice anymore. And as Tom said, they have to use just to feel better. Just to feel better. Just to get up in the morning. And then it's a cycle. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Using what am I going to have to do to get. And what am I, who, who am I going to have to hurt. What am I going to have to do. So that I can just feel normal. Then we go into relapse prevention. Well, we also introduce trauma. So what comes first? The disease of addiction, the mental illness, the trauma. What happens first? And what we believe at Marion House is the trauma happens first. Now that trauma can be overt as childhood sexual abuse, or it can be covert, like my mom was using and she couldn't give me the emotional uh, life that I needed. She couldn't nurture me in the way that I needed. Either way, the damage is there. So we believe at Marion House, the trauma comes first. And then the mental illness comes in, post-traumatic stress a lot of the times. And then addiction. Because once women use and they feel numbed out, they don't have to think of everything that happened in the past. Then the treatment becomes worse than the original disease. So we look at all of that. Then we look at relapse prevention. We spend a more time than they care to know on relapse prevention. What is your relapse warning signs? Because you can stop this process. Relapse doesn't begin when you pick up a drink or a drug. That's the end of the process. And it's not a both and. It's an either or. You are either in relapse or you are in recovery. And it can be a slow process or it can be a fast process. And then we end with some time on spirituality because that is the foundation of a recovery process. It doesn't matter who or what you believe in, but you must believe in something greater than you that can restore you to sanity. So that's the clinical aspect of what we do at Marion House, and it's all-encompassing. It encompasses the employment program because we know women need a job to have purpose in life. It encompasses the education program because we have the school sisters of Notre Dame and the sisters who believe in education. If you don't have a high school diploma or a GED when you come to Marion House, you must be willing to work on that. If you want help with English or math because you're thinking about going to BCCC, you have that as available as well. You don't have any computer skills, we're going to help you with that because in 2013 that's essential. So you have the employment, you have education, life skills. You don't know how to cook, we're going to teach you how to cook. You don't know how to clean, we're going to teach you how to clean. You don't know how to set a table, we're going to teach you how to set a table. We're going to bring you together five nights a week as a family. Because family is important. Families share their celebrations, they share their sadnesses, they come together. They clean the building inside and out. They take pride in what they do. Uh, Sister Augusta Riley is here, the executive director of Marion House in the beginning, and she said 
If you create a beautiful environment for women, they will rise to the occasion, and they do. And the celebrations we have, little gifts at Valentine's Day, um, Shrove Tuesday, Easter, sponsor sponsee dinner, Halloween, Thanksgiving, a beautiful five-star dinner. You'd think we were the Marriott. <laughs> Christmas, a beautiful dinner served by staff. It's a holistic program, and treatment needs to be long-term, and you need to give the love. We've had a relationship with Department of Parole and Probation since 1996. We know it works. We know what we do works. We know what we have is a quality program. I want to highlight something that you said that I think is so critical in this conversation. Um, and that's the elimination of choice um, when you have reached a certain stage of addiction. Mm -hmm. um, you uh, made the comparison aptly, I think, as biology takes over. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when it comes to the justice system, which is a system that to some extent assumes that people are uh, making active choices in the decisions they make, um, that system um, is struggling with how to respond to people who are arrested and charged with drug offenses who are active in drug use or who are arrested and charged for any number of crimes who commit those crimes not because they intend to but because they have no other choice. Um, a non-drug example of this is um, for many of our clients who are struggling with homelessness, they are arrested for public urination because they do not have a home that has a bathroom where they can use the restroom. Um, that focus, I think, is the perfect transition to what Judge Matriciani is going to talk about, which is um, his own and the district court's acknowledgement um, that something needs to change in terms of the provision of, of services to folks who are arrested for misdemeanor offenses. So Judge Matriciani, I'll let you take it from there. Good afternoon. Let me begin by congratulating Marion House on having the gumption to invite a uh, judge to a conversation about what a bad idea it is to incarcerate <laughs> people for breaking the law. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. You know, people often um, identify solely with that one part of our job, the um, sentencing people. And it, uh, I have the pleasure of being the godfather to an eight-year-old girl whose dad is a trial judge. And uh, whenever she wants to do something that I tell her she shouldn't do, she reminds me that her daddy can lock me up. Uh, <laughs> so I'm keenly aware of that. Um, it's actually not the most pleasant part of our job. I think most judges who serve in an urban um, environment like Baltimore City uh, would tell you that uh, sitting and sentencing in drug court or on uh, drug violations is what their least favorite part of their job. Uh, and part of that is that this um, uh, misguided concept of the war on drugs led people who weren't very much exposed to the situation to seek out easy solutions to what's really a very complex and difficult problem. 
Um, so they thought that creating harsh sentences and creating very high guidelines for sentencing people who had committed uh, these infractions as users of drugs was a good idea, and it put the judge in a very difficult situation to try to uh, accommodate both the state's interests and the interests of the defendants. But that gets a little off what I'm doing. I'm really here tonight uh, to talk about a court uh, which has uh, one major maxim to it, and that is nobody goes to jail. Uh, and I've been adamant about that in our, uh, putting this program together. Um, I didn't come up with this idea. It was presented to me, and it was actually uh, generated by a public defender out in San Diego, California some years ago, who had been uh, representing indigent defendants in criminal cases, lots of them drug cases, and lots of them homeless. Um, so we looked at the materials about a court that he had put together that uh, meets in homeless shelters on a regular basis out there and tries to uh, address the issues that these homeless people have about minor infractions with victimless crimes like trespass and loitering, public urination, um, perhaps shoplifting, where the, the, I guess there's a victim to that, but um, offenses where um, there are not serious, deadly serious offenses, not the rapes and murders and armed robberies and carjackings that we see in felony court on a regular basis. These uh, charges are often uh, brought to homeless people, as you know, the population suffers from many problems. Some of them are mental health problems, some of them are addiction problems, some of them are uh, just poverty problems, uh, but they lead them to not appear for trial and they, they get warrants for not appearing for trials. Um, they don't really address their problems straight on and they don't end up with having them either dismissed or expunged later on so that they continue to have a record and the record grows. And then there are impediments to them being able to uh, seek employment, seek housing, um, get student loans, um, uh, move on with their lives, uh, take care of their families. So the concept is, and, and I have to stop for a minute and say it's not mine, and it, you know, it was, it was this gentleman in San Diego's, and then uh, I had the good fortune to be on the mayor's uh, leadership advisory group on homelessness, and they brought it to me, and then we formed a working group. And Tony has been, one, has been like the um, lieutenant general in this group. Uh, she's done all the hard work on it, and uh, I've been more of a facilitator. But uh, we've actually put together now uh, a system. We, like all bureaucracies, I, I had wanted to create a specialized court to address the issues of homeless people. I found out that doing that was going to take years to get through our system to get it all approved. So I said, okay, it's not a court. It's a docket. <laughs> and they, didn't ha they hadn't caught me yet, so I was able to move forward with the docket. And we already had something called early resolution court that existed in the district court. And some of you may have been there with others. It's, it's over at North Avenue in the Eastern uh, Side District Court. And it has specialized dockets. Uh, we were there on a Monday morning when all the defendants were prostitutes. It has a mental health docket. It has a drug docket. Um, so we asked them to meet twice a month with a homeless docket. And uh, what we're going to do is bring service providers to the court so that uh, when people come in, they uh, can meet with the public defender and uh, he can identify them as persons who don't have a stable home at the time. He can introduce them to the service providers and offer to them, nobody's compelled to do this, the opportunity to become involved in our uh, early resolution homeless docket system. It's a system that works backwards. Um, 
unlike most court systems where you have a charge and you go before the judge and you're found guilty and then you're put on probation and then there are all these conditions uh, uh, made in order for you to complete your probation successfully. This is one where uh, you receive the charges, you come before the court, you're put into the system and your case is postponed for 90 days. And then you're assessed by the providers for the kinds of um, services that you need uh, and you're given a uh, schedule and you have to make significant progress in meeting the problems that you have within those 90 days uh, in order to come back to court and have your charges dismissed. Our goal is to clear your uh, record. Um, we had a technical legal issue. Only lawyers will understand about the difference between a null process and a dismissal, but Antonia and I have been fighting that battle and I hope successfully. Um, so that the people will leave ultimately with clean records and the ability to uh, First of all, to have a step up because they've already gotten some treatment and they've already gotten it, um, uh, introduced to services that they need, but also because they don't have the impediments in their way uh, that so often block them from doing those things. So um, this court is going to begin, uh, as Antonia said, late next month. Uh, it's going to meet twice a month on Wednesday afternoons uh, at the Eastern District. Uh, the administrative judge himself is going to sit at first, but then there will be other judges assigned over time. The state's attorney's office and the public defender have been very much involved with us in the um, creation of this program so that they've bought into the system and they are excited about the fact uh, that we're going to try to accomplish what we want to accomplish with it. Um, and we, in terms of service providers, we've seen people from Goodwill, Healthcare for the Homeless, Project uh, Place, St. Vincent de Paul, uh, BSAS, Catholic Charities, uh, Veterans Administration, and others who are going to have people on site uh, to try to address all the myriad problems that the homeless population has, uh, and hopefully we can do that. So, um, did I miss something? No, I, I think you covered <laughs> it all. And um, I, I think one of the tremendous recognitions that occurred in this process of putting the court together was actually it was the state's attorney's office that came forward and said that whatever system existed in early resolution court already, um, and the sole services that were offered were really community service, like picking up trash, had very little impact on the, the underlying reasons that people committed those offenses. Yeah, I mean, we would have people who ran into trouble with the community partnership downtown because they were homeless and they were getting in the way, and then they would be put on community service to work with the community partnership, uh, <laughs> which would only aggravate the problem. So, uh, and I think Antonia spotted that early on and said we've got to tailor our uh, community service to the services that they need and things that will help them rather than cause more difficulties for them. So I think that's a key part of it as well. One of the important services um, uh, that will be offered in this model is for people who are not already um, in some kind of uh, stable, though perhaps temporary housing situation, um, shelter and housing will be offered immediately. Um, and it, it, that is, of course, in recognition of the fact that um, if you have no place to go, that you will probably encounter a police officer and it will not be a pleasant encounter. Um, Thomas Cardula, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your sense of the relationship between housing and addiction, particularly in the Baltimore community. Yeah, housing is such a vital piece of, of recovery, um, and we spend a lot of money 
throughout the state, but in, in Baltimore City on residential treatment, um, where we put somebody in residential treatment for you know 28 days, 30 days, spending you know a thousand dollars a day on somebody. Um, who doesn't need residential treatment? What they need is an intensive outpatient program and a safe place to live. Yet we're putting them, we're spending all these resources on these residential treatment programs, but then putting them back into the unhealthy environment that they were in in the first place. You know, instead of moving some of that money to recovery and supportive housing, again, especially with health care reform and the Affordable Care Act, people will have insurance. You know, you get reimbursed for, you know, you can bill for outpatient or intensive outpatient programs. And then all you got to do is pay for that room and board as opposed to that $28,000 a year that you got to pay everything and you're not going to reimburse for. You know, there's an opportunity over the next year to really shift our system, shift the money that we have, you know, so that we can really then support people over long, longer periods of time. It's, you know, it's a disease, but it's a chronic disease. You know, I have high cholesterol. I'm on, you know, Lipitor. You know, my doctor stops my Lipitor. What's going to happen to my cholesterol? It's going to go back up again. Yet that's what we do in substance abuse. We discontinue treatment. You successfully completed treatment, and then we wait for people to come back into treatment. You know, two thirds of the admissions in for treatment in Baltimore City are readmissions to treatment. You know, because we're stopping yeah. treatment. You know, and that recovery and that supportive housing, which is very inexpensive, you know, is a really key to be able to help support people over that longer period of time. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think we can't forget the clinical piece as well, and by, by that I mean the individual counseling. Uh, to have addiction treatment is only treating one part of the illness. It's not treating the core issues of why people um, found themselves with the disease of addiction to start with. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a, a little bigger than that. Yeah, well, the trauma is a huge piece. I mean, it's really that holistic approach of really looking at individuals, looking at where they are, you know, and, and dealing with everything. You know, just looking at the drug use, and then, like I said, I think that recovery piece or that relapse prevention. You know, people make a conscious decision to use drugs. You know, we make a conscious decision. You know, but what they don't decide, and that's the bi biology piece, is they don't decide to have the intense cravings. That it's the cravings that drives the addiction. Addiction is, is a disease of cravings. And, you know, those cravings are trigger-induced and stress-induced. You know, we, we've done a lot of research on the brain over the past 10 years, and we really know what's going on within the brain. And we all have those cravings. You know, when you're stressed, we eat crappy foods because it makes us feel better. You know, stress-induced, that's a stress-induced craving. You know, when we, uh, if there was donuts here, I would probably want a donut, yet I don't feel like having a donut because there's nothing there. Those triggers that are there and really identifying those stressors and those triggers, you know, and along with getting at that underlying reasons why people first started, but then realizing that you have that underlying biology that's there that can be triggered by another thing or even, you know, a physiological stress reaction that happens. Uh, and as we look towards healthcare reform, utilizing, you know, somatic care or primary care docs, utilizing the medications that we have available to us, the fact that not every doc in Baltimore City is prescribing buprenorphine in, you know, what's considered a, a town that has the worst heroin problem in the world is just ridiculous. You know, it's a medication that's extremely effective, you know, that's very, very safe, and yet, you know, docs aren't going through the trainings and, you know, prescribing that. If that was any other chronic disease out there that docs weren't prescribing this incredibly effective medication, you know, there would be incredible, you know, outrage about it. Yet with substance abuse, because there's so much stigma and so it's their problem that's, you know, they did it themselves, you know, we kind of do a hands-off approach. And that's, you know, hopefully things will change as we get rid of that stigma and incorporate it more with somatic care. Fantastic. I want to make sure that we create enough time for audience members to be able to 
ask questions um, of this uh, wonderful panel. Um, uh, for folks who are interested in asking questions, there is a microphone um, that's along this wall. And uh, Katie Alston is going to make it available to anyone who um, would like to ask a question. Please just raise your hand um, if you have any questions to ask. Um, it, as you all are thinking about that, I'm going to ask one more question of the panel. Um, which is, if you could wave a magic wand, um, what, what is one policy change that you would like to see to, and, and actually it doesn't have to be a policy change, it can be a systems change as well, but, but, but to start to, to shift the focus towards treatment and away from incarceration. I've been speaking a lot to all that other people. Let me just uh, say this, that for the uh, for 14 years I was a trial judge and uh, we used to have a, these enormous dockets in Baltimore City that were called special felony drug dockets. So every single case involved drugs. And invariably some of the people in the docket were incarcerated and they would beg us uh, if they were going to spend time in prison to put them in treatment while they were there so that at least when they came out they had made some inroads into their addiction problems. And we had nothing to offer them. Um, so we were warehousing them and then setting them right back into the environment where they were, uh, where they had gotten in trouble. So that would be a huge change. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and to follow up on that, um, you make a very good point that uh, there is some, uh, has been over the years, drug treatment within incarceration, um, the correctional options program, um, the residential substance abuse treatment, RSET they called it, that was a nine-month program, and um, more recently, Gaudenzia or Second Genesis were behind the fence, but I don't believe any of those fences, um, any of those programs are operational at this point in time. But uh, we need to understand that pro a drug treatment programs behind the fence are themselves have an inherent issue uh, because um, one of the things that the people really need is a safe and trusting environment and behind the fence you don't have that um, and as much as we try to say you know you're safe here people know they're not all we have to do is read the newspaper uh, the past week or couple weeks we know that they're not safe behind uh, the fence so that is um, um, uh, that's an issue that uh, somehow we need to deal with and recognize that drug treatment, housing, yes, but services uh, are critical. You just can't put people in a house. Um, so I think mm -hmm. I think maybe what I'd like to see is housing with treatment, not housing first, because right. if, pe if people aren't mandated to the services they need, they're going to lose the house. Do we have questions yet? Okay, great. We do. Hi, my name is Edris, and I do drug and alcohol addiction with criminal behavior inside the correctional system. And um, one of the struggles I think that we notice is that somebody might think it's just drugs, but it's not just drugs. And then when they get to go out on uh, probation after they do in inside um, the corrections drug treatment, then you know the incubation is mostly inside the legal system and they go back to selling and using drugs because it is not recognized that they have lost so many different life skills and just common knowledge that we take for granted who've never used drugs and of course the trauma sometimes you have to fight to get the trauma um, 
taken care of to include that in treatment or the fact that somebody has a ninth or eighth grade education and they don't read well. Well, I mean, how do you expect them to show up at court on time and follow directions and, and um, you know, so it's a difficult situation because most of them ended up back selling drugs or holding drugs on the corner for people while they take drugs. And the selling of drugs and the lifestyle is as addictive as using the substance also because you cannot stay clean selling drugs, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and um, they're getting tested positive when they really didn't use, but you know, they were in there cutting drugs for somebody to make some money to feed their family and it goes all up in their system somehow. So the whole issue is they can't get a job because they have um, all these charges, you know, that are there. And it makes a clinician work difficult. So I find myself making special packets, you know, and, and doing these extra things like here's how you expunge your stuff. But, you know, people are there to do it, but it would be nice if the court took that up and say, well, you're in drug treatment. Maybe we need to figure out how to deal with your record so you can go and find a job so that we don't have to lock you up again. And it's a difficult fight. And I have, we have a 45-day program. So we have the judges from district and circuit court sending us people, and it's a revolving door. When you see somebody for three times or four times, that means we're not meeting their needs. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's the problem I'm having. What else could we do? Once they leave the system, or even before they leave the system, what can we put in place to incubate them a little bit better than just sending them to an aftercare house that, quite frankly, is a lot of stuff that goes on in there, a whole lot of stuff. So, you know, it is a struggle for them, and I think their struggle needs to be investigated and recognized a lot better. I, so with that question, what else can we do? Trina Selden, um, you do a lot with folks who, uh, as you suggest, have just left incarceration um, in engaging them. Uh, would you share a little bit more about your program as, as one option for that engagement? Well, Alpha for Justice, we're, we're not service providers. What we do is we equip individuals with the skills to advocate on behalf of themselves you know, to, to make that change, to make those changes, you know, if, so they want to be a part of the solution and they're doing out for justice and we can remove some of those barriers, you know. Yes, yes, more questions over here. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to say two things. If I was asked a magic wand, I would follow up on what you're talking about in terms of employment. I'm a judge also, and I was talking this earlier this week to an agent who was coming to me for a complaint, and we got talking about his confidential informants, and he said he has a confidential informant, he's being paid, and he has to continue to do that, but he may not need to go back to crime because he says he can't get a job. So this, um, this law enforcement officer was asking me if I knew any places where his confidential informant could get a job so that he could not go back to crime. It's just the idiocy of our policy. So if there was anything more we could do, is the kind of legislation that we were talking about, the ban the box, the EEOC guidelines really being enforced so that employers don't just say no, but they actually um, think about the job versus the offense and whether it's really a, a problem. 
That's my comment. That's my magic wish. The uh, question I have is we're reading so much more and our courts have so many more gang-related crimes and gang-related uh, conspiracies or, as we have in the federal court and in the state court. How does this issue of addiction relate, if it does, to the growing number of gangs that we see um, in, our, in our state? Who would like to go first? Clue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a complex issue. I mean, one of the one of the pieces, you know, and why Marion House is so good, it's that sense of identity, that sense of togetherness. You know, there, you know, we we've had a failure of how we've dealt with this, and so you have younger people that are really looking for that family togetherness, and then you kind of take the the fact that drugs are illegal, and there's a way for people to be able to generate revenue. You know. And to get a job, you know, if you have an arrest record, what jobs are available? Well, you might not be able to get, you know, a good job, but you can sell drugs, you know. And so, some of the points that you said about employment is some of the things that really drive, I think, the gang-related activities that we have because people have nothing else to be able to go to because we've had these policies in place that to try to prevent, you know, what's happening, but actually what they're doing is promoting what they're trying to prevent. Uh, and because, you know, they think attitude face validity, but, you know, when you really look at how things have played out, it's actually caused more, you know, a big part of the problem than, instead of the solution. Yeah. And I would like to follow up on another point that Susan made. Um, I have the ban, the box. It's my understanding that that's for the federal and state State, state employment. Um, I wonder if it's possible to get the band box for all applications because well, um, people are applying for other jobs. I don't know if that's, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I, know so I don't office. know if that's possible, but that would be a wish. And band box has been removed from the city applications. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what our hope is. Alpha Justice is working to have, you know, if we can get band box passed, then hopefully private employees will follow state follow the state and do the same. Mm -hmm. Keep our fingers crossed. That have banned the box in some jurisdictions individual. I mean for private and some justification. So there, there are models out there in their states that have it, but I think we're yeah. a little bit far away from and, and I'm going to use moderator's discretion here for anyone who doesn't know what ban the box is. <laughs> it is um, it, it is a recognition of the actual physical box that exists on job applications that typically says, uh, do you have a criminal record? And if people check that, that application gets completely ignored. And the employer does not have an opportunity, even if they wanted to, to then look at the record and see if the record contains any offenses that are actually of concern. Um, I, I will say there's um, a wonderful organization that's a partner and colleague with us in all of this work, Job Opportunities Task Force, um, that does tremendous work trying to educate employers about what a criminal record says. And I can tell you, having attended some of those sessions um, to talk a little bit about a criminal record, I have met employers who have no idea how to read one, and in fact will literally look at a charge for which the person was found not guilty, and assume that because it's on the record that they were found guilty. guilty. Mm -hmm. 
even though it says the disposition is not guilty. I think there are a lot of things in the state we can do. We can have automatic expungement of not guilties rather than requiring people to petition the court for it. Constitutionally speaking, if they're found not guilty, it really shouldn't hold them up at all. So um, so I think there are a lot that we can do there, but I wanted to mention that. Judge Mitriciani. Well, I, I just wanted to say that you know uh, there's so many disconnects in the criminal justice system that make it seem nonsensical at times. But one of the primary failings it has is that it just ignores all the problems that come with poverty. And um, you know, as the lady out here was pointing out, um, if you come out of prison with no money in your pocket mm-hmm. and no support system and no ability to access a job or housing or anything else, your options are pretty limited. And you know, if you're sitting there as a judge and you're trying to decide, how can I get this back person back on the straight and narrow? All of the options that you have are pretty middle class options, like you know, attending, making these appointments, and doing this and doing that. If someone hasn't either didn't buy into that system in the beginning or is excluded from the system, it just doesn't work, and everyone just keeps ignoring that. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm going to take one more question, um, Katie, unless you think we have time for two. I think. Okay. Two's fine. Two's fine. Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, First, a parallel. Whoa. Wow, okay. okay. Parallel uh, to to the uh, uh, treatment versus incarceration, gang <coughs> opportunity for youth engagement, youth arts, youth sports. I mean, I think there's a parallel there where if you can give an opportunity for something else, it can mitigate the the problem. That wasn't what I was going to ask. I was going to ask about um, the the folks who are so in the throes of the disease of addiction that they are thinking so unclearly that they don't acknowledge a problem and don't acknowledge they need help and continue to be um, a threat to society as a result. Okay, how does treatment versus incarceration address those individuals? I'm going to ask Kathy Lavinia to talk a little bit about how to help people acknowledge uh, their addiction. Um, There is, um, I wish everything was black and white. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, I also do some prison ministry, and I've learned from my prison ministry that sometimes people need a little time to cool off. Um, So there is a little bit of value there, but it's it's what happens afterward, you know, it's the, um, uh, with the inability of treatment after that initial incarceration that uh, continues the cycle of abuse, I believe. Um, But for us at Marion House, um, the um, clinical task is really to, present the problem, and then um, work with the person so that they can acknowledge that the price of the problem is greater than they're willing to pay. And that price might be um, repeated incarcerations. It might be um, having to prostitute. The price might be um, having to be convicted of a, a armed robbery. Um, so. 
the work then is through motivational enhancement interviewing, um, helping them see the cost of the choices that they're making. And um, usually in a loving environment, um, you can get people to see that. But there is a role, an aspect yes. of that criminal justice has has to play. Yes, there is a role. Well, yeah, I, I think we have some debate I do up think here. There is a role. Well, yeah. In the drug court, mm -hmm. um, it's the hammer over their heads. I mean, uh, people are uh, convicted and they're given as probation the opportunity to take care of their problems by going through drug treatment. Uh, but when they fail along the way or if they flunk out ultimately, uh, they know that this is hanging over their heads. I don't know if that's a good thing in Tom's view or not. Well, uh, and I, I want to bring Trina Selden into this a little bit. Um, and do you think there's a role for incarceration here at all? Do I think there's a role for incarceration? It took for me to get 12 year sentence for me to want to be on a straight and narrow. Mm -hmm. So uh, sometimes you do have to, you have to hit rock bottom before you. You have to hit rock bottom, and if that's your rock bottom, being in prison, then that's your bottom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tom Cardula. I, I, I guess it goes back to your original question with a threat, you know, and what you mean by that. If somebody is a threat to society, you know, violent people need to be locked up. Stealing, credit card theft, right? Threat. And so we're not talking violence, um, right? Right. In, in which case, well. People are committing crimes, and people are, you know, a threat, and, and those are, you know, threats. We don't arrest people for diabetes. We only arrest them for cardiovascular disease. People are dying every day from cardiovascular disease. Yet the criminal justice system is not involved with it at all. You know, so if people are committing crimes. Criminals need to be locked up. If that crime is possession, nonviolent, not you know affecting anybody else. You know, because we have many people that are arrested for possession or even you know selling. You know, no, I, I don't think the criminal justice system has a role whatsoever at all for individuals for those individuals. And while yeah, we can talk about rock bottom. Different people have rock bottom, and, and there's something called yeah. the Jelinek curve. That's this mm -hmm. curve, but it's not really a curve. It's a step down, and it's right. a step down. It's a step down, and okay. every step is, hey, you got in a fight with a family member. A family member kicked you out of your house, you know, and every step is a chance for that to be your rock bottom and to be able to come right. up. That's right. You know, the problem is that our treatment system and our healthcare system is a significant failure. And those steps are where our healthcare system mm -hmm. is, should be intervening and getting people sure. you know, involved and up so that they're not yeah. at a point where we you know, need to arrest somebody and put somebody in jail you know, for them to be able to you know, become, you know, get treatment. Mm -hmm. I, and that's, I, I, that's why I, yeah. I say very strongly no. You know, yeah. uh, addicts are a little bit like homeless people in that some of their habits can be annoying. So if they're stealing <laughs> from their parents so and their siblings, uh, for, to feed their habits and whatever, eventually those people are going to contact the police, and then the system gets involved. The same with, you know, if you're loitering outside this man's restaurant every night and urinating in front of it, he's not going to like that very long, and he's going to call the police, and that, that, you know, that forces the system to come into play. Yeah, right. and and the Jelinek curve is a good example because historically the intervention in the Jelinek curve has been the uh, legal system, right. not the treatment system. And if we can shift that to be the intervention, be the treatment system, we might not have to incarcerate so many people. Yeah, we have 60% of our admissions to treatment referred through the criminal justice system. I, I, that is a failure of our system, you know, and that is where we need to be able to have that shift. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then the last question. 
not only being an alumni of Mary House, but um, coming from a clinical aspect as well as an individual who deals with the homeless population on a daily basis. I am okay with the incarceration, I mean the treatment as opposed to incarceration. However, when you have an individual who is in a homeless state, who has no desire to um, better their life, living situation, has no desire to get off drugs, has no desire to be productive in any way, shape, or form, but just be a drain on the economy as well as the system itself. Um, seeing, putting them in treatment, you know, because I've had several clients on my caseload that use treatment as a form to escape prison, you know, or use treatment as a form to um, circumvent the legal system to be able to get housing, to be able to um, get SSI benefits. That nothing is wrong with them physically, mm -hmm. nothing is wrong with them mentally, um, only the fact that they're lazy and don't want to be responsible individuals and want to continue using. So I understand the, um, the homeless initiative to, you know, I'm, I'm a part of the mayor's program to uh, combat the 10-year homelessness plan. Um, with the Project Homeless Connect and, and all these services that are being given to the homeless population. However, to house them without adequately preparing them to be able to sustain long-term living um, is asinine, to say the least. Because I'm putting you in a home, we, we, every day we assign individuals to some form of transitional housing or some type of adequate living environment. Three months later, they're back at the shelter, living under the Jones Falls Expressway or one of those individuals that you step over on your way going to court or the way going into your office. Because for one, they refuse treatment. For two, they um, have, may have an underlying mental health issue, which they choose not to treat. Um, but all they desire is a place to use, not necessarily a place to live, but a place to use in comfort that they're not being disturbed. You know, so um, I understand that, that we have all these initiatives and they're great um, politically, but are they really addressing the underlying issues? Like Ms. Kathy said, you have to treat the individual, right. not the situation. And I think what all these initiatives do is put a band-aid on the situation because you're still not treating the individual themselves. Well, I, I think that that's a really important statement about um, that as a society when we start to create programs and solutions to um, uh, uh, homelessness and addiction that there's not a one-size-fits-all approach, right? We have to recognize the individual. Um, and, and that each program has their own accomplishments that may not suddenly then transfer to someone else. Like we talked a little bit about um, programs that require services, and Kathy Lavinia talked a lot about the benefits of that program. And there are other programs that have voluntary services, um, some of which are called Housing First, um, that also have tremendous success rates for housing retention. Um, and as a community, um, there isn't one over the other, right? We always want to look at the availability of programs to meet the needs of the individual. And um, as a clinician, I think, Kathy Lavinia, you 
um, I acknowledge that 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 that, that 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 is the goal absolutely I don't think that in any of the conversations that we've been having in Baltimore City either through the leadership advisory group judge Matriciani that that there is the idea that there must be one program and only one program um, I wonder if, if you can say a little bit about some of the other ideas that the Leadership Advisory well, Group has I come mean, up with. I mean, I think with. everyone would agree that if we're going to create affordable housing for homeless people, that there should be services at, the, at that location and available to them. Because, of course, someone who has no experience in paying rent and managing a home isn't going to be able to do it the next day uh, just by being placed under a roof. Um, it's a matter of resources like everything else. Mm -hmm. Any other final thoughts from the panelists? Wonderful. Well, I thank you all, and I thank you all in the audience on behalf of Marion House. <laughs> I'm delighted to be here. And Katie, you might have some closing remarks. Why should I just thank for being here? There is a reception out in the hallway, and for those who want to continue the conversation, I'm sure our panelists will be available. Uh, yeah, I do. Uh -huh. oh, yes, and Trina Selden has a, a brief comment. Go ahead. If they want to continue the conversation, uh -huh. we are having a um, community conversation at the library. At just hang on one moment. We just have an announcement. We're going to continue this conversation. At the, um, we're going to have a community conversation at the Enoch Pratt Free Library at North and Penn Saturday from 11 to 2, if you want to come out this Saturday. Thanks. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.